Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Again, you can find uh, the message card on our website, dwellingplacemovement.org. If you click sermons, you can find it on our social media as well. And you, if you have a smartphone, you can go to Uversion, click events on your phone, your Bible app. And if your location services is on, the first church that will pop up is Dwelling Place. And you'll see my message there in front of you. Matthew chapter 3. We are concluding in week five this series called When People Meet Jesus. Before I do that, though, I'd like to celebrate and honor those who've fallen, those who face the night that we would have a morning, those who took on flying bullets that we would have freedom from rule, right, and reign, and unjust injustice. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, there have now been about 1.1 million U.S. folks who have given their lives in wars. A lot of folks don't know that. They don't realize that 495,000 people died alone in civil war. We buried a half a million people, U.S. citizens, in civil war. Almost 320-something thousand in World War II. And you look at today's modern war on warfare and all the reality is only 6,000. Now, that's not to take away from the 6,000, but when we look at U.S. history, 1.1 million people uh, have fallen that we might have freedom in our country. And so I just want to say happy Memorial Day to us all, right? On Memorial Day weekend. And we honor those, um, not only those in this room who have served in U.S. Armed Forces in some capacity, but those who've gone before us. Can we put our hands together and just celebrate and honor those folks? Amen. Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. When Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be, notice this, baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting, the word there, resting upon him. Beginning in Matthew chapter 3, verses one through, or verse 17, let me read. And suddenly a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now the beginning of that chapter, one other stretch of text that I want to read. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one. Everybody say one. Calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Let's pray today. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to declare your word. I pray, Jesus, that you would just be so clear. I pray, Holy Spirit, shine a light on the strong Son of God. That, Lord, we know if we see Jesus, we'll never be the same. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen and amen. So this series, When People Meet Jesus, I've been blessed immensely. 
Today we're going to look at an encounter between John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, this is not the first encounter between John the Baptist and Jesus, but I want to focus, for the time we have together, on the singular event where we celebrate the baptism of Jesus Christ. Because I think that we can learn from Jesus' encounter with John the Baptist, or better yet, we could say John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus at his baptism. The theophany, we call it in theology, the epiphany, the revelation of God, think about this, in this one singular event of Jesus entering into the waters of the Jordan and entering into those waters of his personal baptism, rising up out of the waters and then the Spirit of God resting on him. But if you notice, this story of Jesus' baptism is also the story of John the baptizer. Now here's what I've learned in church life. Oftentimes, in the accounts of Jesus' baptism, we lose sight in that moment of the crucial uniqueness of John's witness to that baptism. That's the part that I've always overlooked. I don't know how many times I've preached this passage, and that's the part I often overlook. That's the part if you read theology, most people overlook. We lose sight of the singular reality of John's witness to what's actually happening in the singular event of Jesus' uh, baptism. If we reflect just for a moment on John, I think we can begin to understand something very, very important about Jesus. Now, most of us, even if we've not grown up in Christian tradition, like myself, or haven't grown up in church, we've heard of John the Baptist as this really eccentric kind of figure. He, he's dressed in camel skins. He's eating locusts, right? He is drinking wild honey. He is pronouncing doom, and he's pronouncing judgment, and he's calling the people of Israel to repentance in what John calls the baptism of repentance, But I want to say to us and submit to us this morning that he's more than just a wild man. He is a wild man, but he's more than just a figure of strangeness. Jesus, later on in the Gospels, actually says of John the Baptist that he is the greatest of all humans ever born of women. Fascinating. Now think about how important the passage is that you and I just read. If Jesus says there is no more important human being on the planet than John the Baptist. John the Baptist might have something to teach us, might have something to communicate to us. Jesus would say, of born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, that's Jesus' judgment of John. Now, let me remind us, Jesus was not given to exaggeration, and Jesus was not given to hyperbole. So when Jesus describes John, he describes him as the most important human being who ever lived. Now, we read Matthew's account, but in Luke's account of John's birth and conception, it is miraculous. John's encounter with Jesus comes first when John is still in the womb. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and declares to Mary she will be pregnant with a child. He will be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. He will be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Mary does what any mom would immediately do. She runs to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And in the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, the babies in their wombs commune. There is a communion that takes place in the very exchange of the greeting from the very lips of Elizabeth. John, the Bible says, is filled when Mary's words, a, a carrier of the living Christ, touches the ears of Elizabeth, his mother. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus brings with him, if you will, a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit to John in utero. John is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Bible says he leaps for joy. He, he kicks in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus. But by the time we encounter John the Baptist here, he is a man on the edges. He is a man on the fringes. He is a man on the reality of, of, of being uh, on the far corners and the far reaches. He's at the Jordan River past Jericho. If you've been to Israel, Jericho, the longest withstanding civilization city in the entire world, right? Still there to this day. And just beyond uh, Jericho in the Judean wilderness is the place of the Jordan River that is about to empty into the Dead Sea. And at that place of the Jordan River is the historical site where Jesus would be baptized by John. And now John the Baptist, as we find him, is not leaping for joy in the womb of his mother. He's now a man who's grown and he's at the away from the centers of power. And yet he's declaring to the people of God that they must repent. God's judgment is coming upon God's people. And listen, church, he's in no way careful in the ways he speaks to the authorities. In no way careful to the way he speaks to the priests and even King Herod. Which ultimately, by the way he speaks to King Herod, will end his life. John the Baptist's public denunciation of Herod leads to his arrest. And then ultimately leads to his execution. John the Baptist, by the way, would be arrested by 27 AD. He would die somewhere around 29. We know it was about a two-year period that he would be imprisoned because of his public denunciation of Herod the Tetrarch. But John is, is a larger-than-life figure, isn't he? He's, he's eccentric, but he's incredibly powerful. The Bible says that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Can I make some parallels for us this morning? This will preach right here. Like Elijah, John the Baptist was a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, in fact, he's not just a voice crying in the wilderness. The text you and I just read says a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Did you hear the one? There's a singularity to this. This means John the Baptist is unique. He's not like us. John the Baptist is a singular figure. He is larger than life. He's empowered in the Spirit. In some ways, if you study the, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll realize John the Baptist is the fulfillment of all of Israel's prophetic tradition. Think about this. He's miraculously conceived by God. He's miraculously born of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He carries that anointing through his life and he points us to the light that is breaking into the world. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. John was not the, uh, the bridegroom. He came to look, or the groom. He was looking to the groom. He was declaring that Jesus would come after him. He's the one who says to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist. I think what is so critical about John Church what makes him so special is that his life is utterly given over to the witness of Jesus. His life is utterly given over to the decoration of Christ, to the directing of people's attention off of himself back to Jesus. Think about it like this. If John is the one to bear witness to the light, what does that mean about where John lives? John lives in the darkness. John's greatness, John's singularity, John's uniqueness is that no other human being, including us, no other human being experiences the darkness of evil and the darkness of God's judgment 
the way that he does. And it's from that depth of experiencing evil, folks. It's from that depth of experiencing darkness. It's from that depth of experiencing the judgment of God that he now points us to Jesus, the coming judge. Watch this. Who will overcome the evil that threatens us? This is John's uniqueness. So John's life is a life lived in the darkness. We will look later on in just a little bit about an icon of the second century of Jesus' baptism. You're going to see that when Jesus is in the waters of baptism, the waters in which Jesus is standing are not just the waters of his baptism, but the waters of the flood of Genesis 6. And you're going to see they're not just the waters of baptism, but they're the waters of the Exodus and Exodus 3. Jesus, the water he enters in that day, is not just the waters of his baptism, but it's the waters of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And you're going to see the fulfillment of what's happening in John's witness. But John lives there, church. He lives at the heart of God's judgment against what the Scripture calls the mystery of iniquity. That's where John lives. That's where he resides. And living there, he points our attention to the light. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a famous painting, uh, by a Renaissance painting by Matthias Grunewald called The Crucifixion. I'd like to share it with you this morning. In this painting, you can see just to Jesus' left, your right, if you're looking upon Matthias Grunewald's beautiful piece, you'll see John the Baptist. He's holding a book and he has a bony finger, exaggerated finger pointing to the crucified one. He's directing our attention to the crucified one. Footnote to this, just say for a moment, he was a Renaissance painter, Matthias Grunewald, but he carried in within his paintings the medieval traditions. And so much so, this became an altarpiece at... um, uh, in, in a fa- very famous Catholic church, and not only became an altarpiece, it became one of the most stunning pieces of Christian history. Um, you don't, we don't have time to do it today, but if you'll later on this afternoon go home and Google the details, do Google the details of Matthias Grunewald's crucifixion scene, and you'll see Jesus, unlike most other paintings, you'll see how his skin is filleted open. He has barbs of the cat of nine tails still stuck in his body. And in the back... You can't see it. I apologize for the image, but let's go to the next image. Between his bony finger and his face is a phrase. And in this phrase in Latin, it says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He, Jesus, with this bony, exaggerated finger, must increase and I must decrease. That's, after all, church, what John embodies. This attention, this attentiveness, this adoration for Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, church, If there's ever been a time, and there's always a time, where we need to, in the Western church, turn our attention to Jesus, it is right now. In the midst of our political party speech, in the midst of our culture wars, that is not just eating the world, but eating people who attend our church, and eating people who are a part of our church, and the church in Woodstock, we need to turn our attention to Jesus again. We need to take our bony, exaggerated fingers and point to the crucified, now resurrected one. John the Baptist embodies for us a witness to the lights. One of my favorite stories of uh, fabulous uh, theologian Stanley Howarus. He's another larger-than-life figure, much like John the Baptist. He taught at Notre Dame, and, and then he went on to taught at Duke, or teach at Duke. There's a famous story about Stanley Howarus, who was a very small, feeble man, but had a really deep, raspy voice. And there's a story of him walking through the halls of Notre Dame one day. 
And um, he goes to get on an elevator. And when he gets on the elevator, there's two learned professors there. Really brilliant professors. And they're having this very learned, what you would call like an esoteric conversation that only a few people could understand what they're talking about. And the conversation's about philosophy, and the conversation's about theology, and about sociology. And right before the doors of the elevator open for Stanley to get off of the elevator, he, with his raspy voice, turns and looks at these two brilliant professors. And he says to them, Boys, what in the... does that have to do with Jesus? And then he gets off of the elevator. Can I tell you today, we need that kind of redirection in the church today. We need that kind of, with all the things we see, with all the things we hear, with all the things that we're accustomed to engaging each and every week, we need a strange somebody. We need a strange John the Baptist. We need a strange Stanley Howard to say, what in the... Does that have to do with Jesus? Hey, we can talk in circles. We can talk in theories all we want to do. But what does that have to do with Jesus? We need that kind of, I don't know, almost violent redirection. Because we, Christian, we Christians, we, our life is about Jesus. Our life is about the Son of God. That's who we are. The Spirit of the Father has claimed us as witnesses to Jesus. Witnesses to the Son of God. That has to be what our attention is turned towards. That has to be what our words are in tune with. That has to be what concerns us above all else is Jesus. Our life concerned with Jesus. I think, listen, we should say to ourselves sometimes, if, if other people won't say it to us, I think we should say to ourselves sometimes, right in the middle of whatever else has our attention at the moment, right in the middle of whatever feelings have taken us away from the reality of Christ, whether it be anger, or whether it be bitterness, or whether it be despair, or whether it be shame, or whether it be fear, we need to, in the midst of that moment, say to ourselves, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus right in the midst of what we're feeling in our marriages we must have the prophetic impulse to say but okay cool what does this have to do with Jesus right in the middle of our careers our vocations we need a prophetic witness in our day and age to declare what does this have to do with Jesus John does that he points us back to the fact that what God is doing in the world is always fitted to the suffering servant. It's always fitted to the God-man. Hear me. What God is doing in the world is fitted to the life of the God-man Jesus Christ. And what the Bible shows us at Jesus' baptism is nothing less than the character of God. Everybody say character. We get more insight into the character of God in this one little theophany, perhaps than most of all of Scripture. You say, Craig, what do you mean? This is at the heart of Christian conviction, the baptism of Jesus. What we see happening with Jesus is a revelation. This is the beginning. Now, I'm not saying the, the Trinity doctrine started here. I'm saying this is the beginning of when theologians communicate about the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus, the divine Son in the water, the Father in heaven speaking, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. John got to witness the first time the Trinity's all on earth in one moment. John got to witness this. John was there in the baptism. It's everything, listen, it's everything we need to know about who God is, what God is like, what God purposes for us, and what God desires from us. So let's think just for a few moments about the singular act of the baptism of Jesus. Can I give you a couple of points this morning? First thing I want us to see is this. Number one, 
Jesus goes out to John. Jesus goes out to John. He goes out to John. Jesus comes from Nazareth to the Jordan River where John is baptizing. Now, if we don't know the landscape here, we don't realize that's a long walk. That's a really long walk. At minimum, that's a three-day journey. At minimum, it could be up to a week-long journey. And Jesus does this to inaugurate His ministry, to start His ministry. It might have been as much as a week's journey to get to John so that this moment can happen. Jesus goes out there. We must remember this about Jesus. Are you ready, church? There is no link to which He won't go to reach everyone He wants to reach. There is no link to what Jesus will do and where He will walk and how far He will go and he will, who He will get involved with to reach the people that He intends to reach. The way the Apostle Paul will say this is that His prayer is for us to know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. What we see in the first act of Jesus going out to John is that Jesus goes to whatever link necessary to reach the depths, the corners, the infringes, the edges to claim those people for God. Jesus goes out to John. Paul will say, He who ascended, watch this, first descended to the lowest parts of the earth that he might ascend and he might give gifts, Ephesians 4, 7-11, to men, women, and children, to people. So listen to me, church. What we see in Jesus is the one who covers the entire map. What we see in Jesus is there's nothing too extreme for him. Aren't you glad about that this morning? There's nothing too far removed for Jesus. There's nothing too high. There's nothing too far away. There's nothing, no journey that he won't make. There is a, a Jesus, a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one in redemption. He goes down. He goes out to John, and then he goes down in the waters. He goes down in the waters of chaos. Jesus at his baptism goes down in the waters of the Genesis 6 flood. Jesus at his baptism goes down in the waters of the Exodus. Now watch this. He goes down with the damned. I want you to think about the difference for a moment. Are you ready? He doesn't go through the waters on dry ground. This is no Isaiah 43. He, he doesn't have Exodus 3, the waters, Exodus 4, the waters split and he walk over on dry ground. No, no, no. They don't part. He goes down in the waters with Pharaoh and his dismantled army. He goes down in the waters with the wicked ones who are destroyed in Genesis 6 with the goes down with the wicked. He goes down with the damned. He goes down with you and with me. He goes down into the chaos to claim it for God. Jesus, what did he say? He said, listen, realize, what does he embody? He says, if you love those who love you, what have you done? He said, it's only when you love those who hate you that you bear the mark of the Father's love. In other words, Jesus embodies that. Jesus loved those who hated him, didn't he? He loves those who are against him. He loves those who are enemies against him. In the language of Paul, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So hear me, church. God comes seeking us when we are not seeking him. God comes after us when we're not coming after him. He gives his life for us in our estrangement from him. He goes down in the waters. And guess what he comes up as? Jesus comes up as the new creation. The new creation. 
This is why the Spirit settles in him like a what? Oh, watch this, church. Watch this. If you know Scripture at all, at all, you know what the dove is. The story of the dove in Genesis 7 is searching the world, isn't he? Why did Adam, why did Noah send out the dove? Because he wants to see when the waters have receded. So what happens? The dove goes out searching. And when the flood evaporates and the dove doesn't return, what does it mean? A new creation has emerged. Post-judgment, a new creation has emerged on the other side of the judgment of God. So when the Holy Spirit rests on Jesus, that is the sign the new creation has come. On the other side of the judgment, this is the new creation. Look at Him. This is Him. This is the one that your life should point to. This is the utter fulfillment of all that your heart longs for. New creation is here. And the Spirit rests on Him. And notice the Spirit rests. In Genesis, the Spirit doesn't rest. In Genesis, the Spirit sweeps and it hovers over the chaos. But now the Spirit settles on Jesus because order has come and God's kingdom is realized. And then watch this, church. Watch this. Jesus goes out from His baptism as the one who is claimed beloved. The Father in heaven, when Jesus comes out of the water, He says, this is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, He rises and He goes into the wilderness to begin conquering the enemies of God and to perform the reconciliation of those enemies back to God. And listen to me, church. Listen to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage theologically for a moment. I'm going to put the teacher hat on, but I know you can go with me. So go with me just for a moment. Everything that happens to Jesus in this moment is also happening to us too. It's happening to us. The church fathers, early church fathers, repeatedly said that Jesus was baptized by John not in order to wash away his sins. He was the sinless Son of God. So the early church fathers looked at the baptism of Jesus and said, He's sinless, but in order to sanctify the water for us, Jesus goes down in it. So that when Jesus enters the waters of baptism, nothing is happening to Him except that which He allows to happen to Him for the sake of us. He's not changed. The water is changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The water is charged with the Holy Spirit. And so that water becomes the waters of our redemption. So that water becomes the waters of our salvation. So that water becomes the waters of our regeneration. If you look at the baptism icon that I mentioned earlier, a powerful icon, you can see how this is enacted. I'd like to show it to you. Jesus, notice in this icon, is in the midst of the waters. Again, I apologize for a little bit of the distortion of the image, but just focus with me on this image. Waters are rising up to Jesus' neck, and on one side of him stands John on his right, our left, and he's got an axe and a tree, because that's what John came to do, to lay the axe at the tree, the judgment of God was coming. On the right, you'll see halos. These are saints and these are angels that are anticipating the reconciliation of what we are reading about today. Now, in the midst of that separation, do you see above Jesus? There is a rock on His left and a rock on His right. That Jesus, in His baptism, these two mountains are broken open by the destruction of evil. Notice right above Jesus' head, there's a dove. The Holy Spirit is descending on Jesus as a dove. Now, I know it's hard to see, but all around Jesus in the waters are fishes, as the King James puts it. They're fish all 
in the water. Now look again, again, I see the image, but look down to the far right of Jesus' foot and the far left of Jesus' foot. Jesus is standing on doors. Look at his feet. He's standing. These are the doors of hell itself. These are the doors of Haiti. Jesus is standing on the doors of hell. You can see Adam on his right. You see Adam in a, in a, in a, a shirtless uh, figure here at his bottom right, his right foot. And then on his left foot is Eve. And they are reaching out towards him so that what is happening here in the waters of baptism is that Jesus is conquering death. He is, as the, we say on Holy Saturday, he is harrowing hell. He is robbing hell of what hell took from you and I. Jesus in his baptism is claiming again what God has made in the beginning. This is Jesus' baptism. I want to stress the fact that in doing this, he does it by yielding to John's ministry. Now Jesus is, listen to me church, he is the loved lover. Jesus is the loved lover. Now oftentimes, when I talk about Jesus being our lover, people get somewhat weirded out by that because so many of us misunderstand love that when we hear lover, we think of erotic love. I would say to us that erotic love is quite possibly the most shallow version of love in Scripture. Love is so much better than merely sexual. Love is so much better and deeper than merely physical. And when I look at the baptism of Jesus' church, I think and believe that there are very simple truths that we can understand Jesus as the lover. So point number two, if you're taking notes, not only does Jesus go out to John, but number two, Jesus was loved. Jesus was loved. Of course, He still is loved, but before we can address the fact that Jesus is a lover, we have to have context that He first loved us. He loved us first. He was first loved of the Father, and then He loved us first. I want you to think about something for a moment. Parents, this will make sense to you. I'm a dad. My wife and I, we have three kids. I learn something when I go to games. I go to a lot of games. Our kids are involved in sports. When you ask a parent, hey, how's everything going in Johnny's life? How's everything going with Johnny? Oftentimes, I would say 50% of the time, parents will start inevitably bragging about their kids. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, there can be something wrong with that in the sense of self-centeredness and making the family revolve around the child and not letting the child come into the established family and allow the established family to determine the values of the child and you get into some major issues there. But, but we like to celebrate that which we love. We like that. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. If I ask 50% of parents, hey, how's Johnny doing? They're going to take that opportunity to ba- brag about Johnny. But out of all the things that the father could have said of the son, he could have bragged about what the son did. He could have bragged there at his baptism and said, hey, this is the one with the perfect record. He could have bragged and said, hey, this is the one that is awesome. This is the one that you've been looking for. No, no, no. That's not what he said. The Father in heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, church, literally what that means is the Father didn't say, hey, Israel, look, this is the one who has a perfect record. Hey, Israel, look, this is the one that you are longing for, the promised Messiah. He said there at the baptism waters, I love my son so much. Parents, think of how incredible this is. When was the last time someone asked you, 
how Johnny was doing in baseball and your response was, I love Johnny so much. Hey, hey, how's Johnny doing in school? And I love Johnny so, so much in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, man, I take such pleasure in him. I, I get joy from him because I love him so much. Now, some of us, we think, you know, this is the first time that the son had ever heard the father say that of him. This is the first time Jesus had ever heard those words from his father. Can I tell you, this was not the first time Jesus heard those words from the father. Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42 are actually where these Matthew chapter 3 words come from. They're a repeat Matthew chapter 3 of Psalm. Look at Psalm 2 and 7. Notice the text says, The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. I've become your father. Look at Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He's my chosen one who pleases me. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. So this wasn't the first time that Jesus had heard these words, and this wasn't the last time Jesus would hear these words. On the mountain of transfiguration, the son hears the same words from his father. God says of Jesus over Jesus, I love my son so much, and he brings me so much joy, and he brings me so much pleasure. That's what he says when Peter, James, and John are on Mount Tabor and the Transfiguration Mountain and the cloud envelops it. God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I don't know about you all, but here's how my mind goes. I want to ask Jesus. Jesus, how long have you been experiencing this love of the Father? How long has that been for you? Did you know there's an answer? Jesus gives it to us in John chapter 17. Notice in John 17 verse 24. Father, I desire, as he's praying, that they may also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me. I don't know if you know that or not, but that's romantic talk. That's romantic talk. I just want those you gave me to be with me, Father. Hey, if I could pray anything, Father, Father, can you allow Craig Mosgrove to be with me forever? I'm just going to pause for a moment. Because the temptation is, when I say Jesus was love, it becomes a truth we've heard so long, we relegate it to a children's book or a children's story. He was loved. He was loved. And then he says, for you've loved me before the foundation of the world. That's how love talks. How long, Jesus, have you known the Father's love? Oh, before the foundation of the world. You ready this? You ready, church? Before anything which is ever was, Jesus said, I was loved by my Father. I'm going to say it again. Before anything which is ever was, I was loved by my Father. You ready? The first love which ever existed was the Father's love for the Son. It's the deepest historical love there is. Not only was Jesus love, but number three, point number three, Jesus lived love. He lived loved. Now listen to me, just because you are loved doesn't mean you lived loved. Are y'all with me? 
You've been counseling people long enough to realize just because you are love doesn't mean you live love. We all know God loves us, but do we actually believe it? Because see, when you believe something, you act as if it were true. Do we live loved? Not do we know love. Not do we know we are loved. Do we live loved? Is that the way we carry our lives? Is that the way we experience life? Jesus knew he was loved by the Father. And we see this in so many things in his life that prove that to us. You say, Craig, what are those things? Can I give you a few of them? Number one, we know that Jesus lived love because he always talked about his Father's love for him. He spent his whole ministry, Deb, talking about the Father's love for him. I mean, you would probably at some point begin to think, Jesus, okay, we got it. Your dad loves you. You, we understand. You know what John the Baptist would say of Jesus in John chapter 3? Look at John chapter 3, verse 35. Powerful, powerful scripture. This is John the Baptist speaking. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. Now, let me ask you a question. How long had John the Baptist known Jesus? Sometimes we think, oh, John the Baptist just learned about him that day when he was baptized. No, he met him in his mother's womb. He's now been with the son of God for three decades. You say, how does he know that the father loved his son? How does John the Baptist understand that the father has put everything thing into his hands because he heard the son talk for three decades about how much his dad loves him everywhere he goes he talks about his daddy's love for him Woo! what would happen if the church would live this way what would happen to our witness to Jesus if we understood this and lived this way and talked this way and operated this way? Look at John chapter 8, verse 16. Very end again. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I'm not alone. And what does Jesus say? The Father who sent me is with me. He's with me all the time. That's how love talks. Why is he with me all the time? Because he wants to be with me. That's how love talks. That's romantic talk, church. Jesus is the love lover. He wants to be with us. The Father wants to be with him. He wants to be with us. And time and time again in the Gospels, we see Jesus talking about the Father's love for him. Here's another way we know Jesus lived loved. We know Jesus lived loved because he never tested the boundaries of God's love. He never tested the boundaries of God's love. Two ways we can know this. First of all, it doesn't exist. There is no boundary of the Father's love for the Son. There's no line. Jesus never tested the boundary of God's love because the boundary does not exist. Can I read a scripture for us that will help us understand the Father's heart? Love and its limits. Look at Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures until. No. Let's read it again. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures as long as... No. Give thanks to the Lord, He's good. His faithful love endures forever. There's no other condition. It endures forever. Look at me, church. Do you and I live in a way that shows His faithful love endures forever? Another way I could say this, are you ready? You can search for the boundary of God's love for all eternity and you'll never find the end of it. Y'all, do you, do you realize what's awaiting us? Do you realize 
the unconditional, needs no reciprocation. Love, fierce love of the Father that you and I are going to be bathed in for all eternity. Fourthly, Jesus goes out to John. Jesus was loved. Three, Jesus lived love. But fourthly, here's where you and I come in. Jesus loves you. Now, I know Billy Graham, before he died, he was asked, he said, what is the most important theological truth that you've ever learned? And he immediately, with no hesitation, said, I got it. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Again, we often take something very sacred and we make it very commonplace the more we rehearse it. And we relegate it to a children's song. You say, Craig, to what extent does Jesus love me? Are you ready? I've got two little one-liners for you. Both of them are scripturally true. Here's the first one. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves him. Jesus loves you. He loves me as much as the Father loves him. No, 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 Craig, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, he loves Jesus because Jesus is the perfect one, but he can't love me. You don't know my trash. Well, the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't come down to what I've done and what you've done. It comes down to what he's done. And Jesus' love for me is equivalent to the Father's love for him, not because of what I've done, but because of who he is. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look at John 15 and verse 9. Notice what the text says. Powerful text. I have loved you, he's speaking to the disciples, even as the Father has loved me. So remain, stay submitted in my love. Another way to say this, are you ready? Here's my second one-liner. God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. God loves you, he loves me, just as much as he loves Jesus. The one true God, the creator God, El Elyon God, Elohim, Yahweh, Right now, the God who spoke creation into existence loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Now, I want you to really meditate on this. Are you ready? Now, meditate is just a scriptural word for chew on. I'm going to show you something on the screens that, you know, in my sermon preparation or personal devotion time, I like to open up a couple of my journals and I'll put what I call revelatory truths that are just life-changing for me. I, I can't be honest this, you know, 35 and say this is going to be the, the best one. But I will say probably at the end of my life, this would be top 10. Revelatory truths. Are you ready? It's going to be a little bit long, but chew on it with me. You ready? Next one. Jesus loves the Father more than anyone ever has because the Father loves Jesus more than anyone ever will. The Father loves you more than anyone ever will because the Father loves you just as much as He loves Jesus. Because Jesus loves the Father more than anyone ever has and the Father loves you more than anyone ever will, Jesus loves you the way the Father loves Him. Therefore, you and I may confidently say, Jesus loves me. Do we live loved?
Do we live loved? Finally, I want to end back with the emphasis on John the Baptist. We go back to that image of Grunewald's painting where he is pointing that bony, exaggerated finger to to Jesus. And I want to say something to us here. Jesse, you playing keys today, my man? You can come, my friend. Congratulations, Jesse is married. Congrats to both of you wonderful folks. Laura, we love you. So awesome. They got married two weekends ago, and so this is their first Sunday back. We love you folks. Congratulations. Laura, we welcome you with open arms. So glad you're part. There is a way of acknowledging God's greatness that is good, and it's honorable, and it should happen. Hear me. There must come points in our life where we say, He must increase, and I must decrease. But as I was reading through that text this week of Jesus and John the Baptist and John making the declaration that I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to baptize you, Jesus. And Previous to that, he would say, I'm not worthy. not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. I was reading that and Jesus, he just, he subtly shifted something in my heart and perspective of that text that seems to be a shadow and that's a pun intended. I want you to follow me for a moment. Many of us are shaped in a Christianity that thinks our relationship to God is always a competitive one. This is the Christianity I inherited. So we believe this. God's will comes at the expense of my will. We believe God's exaltation comes at the expense of my humiliation. We believe for God to do what God wants to do, I must not do what I want to do. That's how we view. We're shaped by that competitive Christianity. Again, there's wisdom there. I'm not, I'm not all the way throwing that to the wayside. There must be moments in our life where we, like Jesus in the Gethsemane, say, not my will be done, but yours. There, there have to be moments where we come to the end of ourselves and we say, not mine, but yours. But what happens in Jesus' baptism is that He submits to John. John doesn't submit to him. John is saying, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus said, no, this must be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. I think sometimes, follow me for a moment, we in in our world, we have a self-infliction where there can be a way, not all of us, but there can be a way for some of us where we in our witnessing and pointing to Jesus, we do it because we are afraid of who we are or we are disgusted with who we are or we have too much shame with who we are hear me shame will always tell you who you're not God will always tell you who you are and so what happens is we have a way of pointing to 
Jesus as a way of escaping any kind of reality or spotlight on us. And I want to say to you today, whether you've ever heard it or not, it is not good when our witness for Jesus arises from our own hatred of ourselves. It is not good and it is not healthy when our witness to the Son of God arises from our wrong perception of ourselves or our own fear of ourselves. So why does Jesus submit to John? Well, I want to submit to you today that he submits to John to teach him this truth. And this is my fifth and final point. Jesus submits to John to teach John this truth. That whatever the Father says of him, Jesus, the Father also says of John. That Jesus goes into the baptism waters to declare to John that day that what is about to be said of my Father in heaven over me is what my Father in heaven says over you. That you are to be wrapped up in the experience that you are about to experience with me. So Jesus, watch this, comes under the hand of John. He submits to the baptism of John. We do, hear me church, we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to say not my will be done, but yours be done. But hear me. That's only a stage of the journey to full healing, full wholeness, and the full flourishing God wants for us. What He means for us is to hear said of us what is said of the Son. You are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Hear me, hear me. You can't hear that rightly until your will is submitted to His. But conversely, you are not rightly submitted to His will until you hear that about you. And I'm convinced this is true. I'm convinced we are people of the sacrament. When we take communion, what do we believe? We believe that bread and that juice, what? It houses the presence of Christ. It's not just symbolic. We believe that it houses God's presence, meaning the grace of God is extended to us when we partake. When we have this baptism pool, folks, it's water that comes straight from the city of Woodstock. But let me tell you something. We are people of sacrament. What does that mean? That means that this water is infused with the presence of God, infused with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what we believe about bread and wine or bread and juice is what, and what we believe about the baptism waters is what we believe about people. People. people are members of the body of Christ. You are his lips. You are his ears. You are infused with the presence of Christ. You are endowed with the spirit of almighty God. You are his body. He doesn't need you to decrease so he can increase. That's what demons do. Demons possess and drive out humanity. Legion, the man in the region of the Gerasenes, his, his personality was driven out by the demons. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't drive out your personality. Demons drive out your personality, your uniqueness. When God fills you, you are most yourself. God does not displace us. God fulfills us. That's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Hear me. Where God is most present in your life, you are most fully yourself. Your real self. Not the self that sin wants to make you think you are. But when God fills you, you are you. In other words, when God and where God's will is most accomplished in your life, you are doing what you want. Not what sin makes you think you want. People think, oh, I'm going to have to follow God and do what I don't want. No, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. It's not all God and no you. No, it's all of God in all of you. And he comes down to John, submits to his baptism and declares to him that I want what is said of me from the Father to be true of you. John does not need to decrease. He needs to be increased with the increase of God. And think about the end of John's life. Think about this. He's in a prison cell. And he's going to get his head cut off. The greatest man ever born of all women. 
he dies questioning. And he says to his disciples, go get Jesus and ask him, are you the one? Or is there one to come? You hear me? Look at me, church. If we want to rightly witness to Jesus, we have to accept that his belovedness is ours or we will begin to rot even in our witness to him. And we will begin to doubt if we don't believe the truth about what he says about us. Look at me. Some of you right now are in a hard season and you're doubting what God has said about you. And you're doubting the goodness of God. When you put your faith in God, hear me, that same God brings to you his faith in you. He comes and brings his faith in you. And if you cannot believe that he believes in you, eventually you will not be able to believe in him. I'm going to say it again. If you cannot believe that he believes in you, eventually you will not believe in him. In other words, if all you know about the relationship with God is a power differential where he's God and you're not, God, you are God and I'm not, you will start to suspect that God is not good in the way that he says he's good. What happens is we get caught up where some of us started the journey with Jesus. We started following God, yet in following God, we've not come to that place of the fullness of God as witnesses to Jesus, like the disciples in Ephesus in Acts 19. Not filled with the life of Jesus, only baptized in the baptism of repentance. And our own doubts about ourselves and distrust of ourselves undermines the integrity of our witness to His goodness. And what I want to say to you today is you have, you have to direct attention to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Yet you have to allow Jesus to put attention back on you. And hear me, you have to know that you know that Jesus is radically devoted to you. He believes in you. He trusts you. Why? Because the life of Christ is in you. Jesus is the beloved lover. He goes out to John. He was loved. He lived love. He loves you. And what's true of him is true of you and me. Would you bow your heads with me all across this room? Father, we just look to Jesus today and we thank you that you say you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. If there's a person in this room today or streaming live today that feels shame about who they are, that has listened to the voice and lies of the enemy for far too long, to declare over them that they are never enough, not enough, will never amount to enough, Whatever deep voice of insecurity, fear and anxiety, worry and doubt, that says they'll never measure up. I pray by the precious Holy Spirit right now that they would hear the words of our Savior say, I am not ashamed to call you my brother. I am not ashamed to call you my sister. Lord, your belief in us is what enables us, Lord, to do what we've been called to do by your Spirit. God, you have placed within each life in this room a capacity, a heart, a desire to serve you. I know that, that they're here. Maybe some, God, that years have passed and maybe there's hurt. 
Maybe some in this room, there's church heard or spiritual leadership heard or there's confusion or doubt that surrounds the reality of the risen Savior because of wrong engagement with people who claim to know Him. I pray that in these moments we have together, you could wash away. You could wash away, Jesus, the complexity. And that you, like you did with Peter on the seashore that day, you would begin to untangle us from the complexity of life. And you would ask us, do you love me? And we could respond, yes, I love you, Lord. And do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. And that God, today, we could once again just revel in the reality that we are deeply loved of you that god there's nothing we can do to change that love there's no action we can take to disregard or relegate that love to anything less than what it is that love is not based on who we are that love is based on who you are and you never change when we're depressed you love us the same when we're in shambles you love us just the same when we're fearful you love us just the same and today we don't try to try to put on a front we don't we don't try to put on a a reality that we are uh, something that we are not but today we just humbly submit to you and ask god that by your holy spirit you would awaken us with fresh uh, renewed and energies in your spirit to recognize, oh God, that you do love us with an everlasting love and with your loving kindness, you've drawn us to yourself. Father, we just long to hear the words said over us that was said over your son. This is my beloved daughter, my beloved son. And I take so much pleasure in them. Oh, I love them. I'm so pleased. Jesus' name. Congregation, would you look at me? One of the things I've begun to do, I'm not here to embarrass my son, but I've begun to do often when I put him to sleep is I'll cut my hand around his ear and I'll just say to my son, who's 11, Knox, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are not a disappointment to anyone. You are loved. I wish the Father in heaven by His Spirit would take His heavenly hand and cusp your ear today and He'd say to you, Hey, I love you. Oh, I really love you. If you knew, I've got your kindergarten picture on the refrigerator in heaven. And every day I just celebrate it with the angels. And I just love the person you've become. Thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for allowing my love to redeem and renew you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.